Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I'm your host, Dr. Vaseem Akhtar. Today I'm joined by Emeritus Professor of Cosmology and Astrophysics at the University of Cambridge, Martin Rees. He is the UK's Astronomer Royal, a Fellow of Trinity College, and a co-founder of the Centre for the Study of Existential Risks at Cambridge University. Today we are going to discuss his new book, The End of Astronauts, Why Robots Are the Future of Exploration. In this discussion, we will also touch upon some intriguing points uh, that Professor Martin Rees discusses in one of his previous books on the future, Prospects for Humanity. Martin, thank you very much for joining me and a very warm welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Thank you very much. Very good to be with you. Martin, in the past 50 years, human exploration of space has become a fascinating area. We have uh, also seen some very successful robotic space exploration programs. However, the interest in human exploration of space remains strong. The title of your book is The End of Astronauts. This statement seems a bit too strong. Um, um, Well, I'm not sure it is really because the high point of human spaceflight was more than 50 years ago, the Apollo program. Uh, Since that time, far less effort has been put into manned spaceflight and robots have got much better. And since the end of the Apollo program, uh, humans have of course, been up into space into low Earth orbit, many hundreds into the International Space Station. Um, But that's not very glamorous. The space station only makes the news uh, if the toilet fails or if uh, uh, Chris Hatfield, the Canadian astronaut, uh, plays his guitar and sings David Bowie songs. So I don't think that uh, the human spaceflight as done in the last 50 years has been very glamorous. And of course, the reason it hasn't been more glamorous is that robots are far, far better than they were 50 years ago. They're going better all the time. Um, And uh, if we think about returns to the moon and in the longer term going to Mars, then robots will go. They'll go first. Uh, Just as a footnote, I think people may go one day But the point we make in our book is that uh, if they go, it'll be as an adventure and they will go accepting high risks. And I think they will go privately funded. I don't think taxpayers' money should be spent to send people on expensive trips, which is just a thrill. This takes me to my next question. Maintaining life support system for long-haul space travel is expensive. And you suggest that the taxpayers' money should not be wasted on such unnecessary missions where the same research uh, can be conducted by robots. However, uh, if this is undertaken by private companies with private investment, then what is your take on on, on such human space exploration? Well, in fact, I... uh... I'm not against it. It's not public money. It's private wealth and sponsorship. But there's another point which is more important, which is that if astronauts are sent into space uh, as civilians by a Western government, then we have to be very risk averse. Let's think back to the shuttle, which was launched 135 times, and there were two crashes. 
Each of those was a national trauma in America and slowed down the program by three years. And of course, a less than 2% failure rate, which is what that is, is entirely acceptable to test pilots and to uh, risk-taking adventurers, the kind of people who go hang gliding around the world, ballooning and uh, go to the top of Everest, etc. Uh, and so uh, it could be done much more cheaply by people who are prepared to take higher risks than the Western government could impose on publicly funded civilians. But the dangers uh, remain the same if it is done with taxpayers' money or with the private funding. Well, it, <clears throat> it is dangerous, but I think um, obviously it costs extra money to make the risk lower. And my point is that in the case of uh, private funders launching adventurers, they won't need to be quite so risk averse. And that's why they can do it much more cheaply. And you uh, also emphasize, as you just did a few moments ago, that it is also important to think of space as being a dangerous environment. And we should talk about space adventure and not space tourism. Well, that's very important because uh, it's never going to be entirely routine. Um, and uh, if it's regarded as routine, then the first crash will really have a huge public impact. It's got to be regarded as something which is very risky and uh, we react to the accidents in the same way as we react to uh, a mountaineer who uh, tries a dangerous climb and falls. It's the way they would want to go and they're prepared to accept the risk. So I think that's the big difference. And of course, it is expensive um, and a long trip, like a trip to Mars, is expensive because you have to provide 200 days provisions for them on a journey, and uh, you've got to hope there's not a big radiation burst uh, that will give them a dangerous dose on the way. And of course, that's only a one-way trip. If you want to bring them back, then of course that costs not just twice as much, but probably 10 times as much, because you need to have sent out in advance um, the rocket for the return trip and provisions for that, etc. So it's much, much more expensive to send humans, whereas a uh, robot hibernates all the way and doesn't need to be brought back. So for practical purposes, including exploration, um, the robots are the future. Let us dig deep now on some of these points and perhaps go into a bit more detail. The book presents an optimistic view of the progress that we are making in developing better and smarter robots. Talk to us about the progress that we are making in developing better and smarter robots that will enable us to do better space exploration. Well, let me illustrate this by what's happened with Mars exploration. Um, a probe called Curiosity was launched and got to Mars a bit more than 10 years ago. And it trundled very slowly across a Martian crater, slowly because if there was a rock in its path, it had to uh, report back to Earth, as it were, to get instructions about how to deflect its path. A later robot called Perseverance, which landed on Mars last year, had enough AI that it could figure out for itself how to change course if there was a rock or obstacle in its path. Now, it still can't do geology, but if we extrapolate the progress of AI in the next 10 or 20 years, then 
I think we could expect that by then um, the uh, artificial probe would be able to um, know enough geology to, to pick out a specially interesting place to dig. So I think they are catching up. Now, obviously, um, they can't do what a humans can do, but we're talking about uh, 10, 20, or 30 years ahead. And by then, there's every expectation that the robots um, could have enough intelligence to do what a human geologist could do. And of course, uh, they can go not just to Mars, but they can go to the moons of Jupiter, for instance, and no one ever feel, thinks we can send humans that far. Uh, let us discuss space exploration in general. We are the only species that understands extinction. We know species come and go and we understand species can go extinct. So there is an element of sense of duty that we must explore other places to live, to survive and perhaps to thrive. Uh, what is your view on this? Um, well, I'd like to make two two points. Uh, one is that um, uh, even though um, I hope and indeed expect that there will be a few crazy pioneers living on Mars. Um, the idea that was promoted by Elon Musk and by my late colleague Stephen Hawking, uh, that uh, uh, millions can go to Mars to escape Earth's problems, is a dangerous delusion because making uh, Mars habitable is far, far more difficult than dealing with climate change on the Earth. Uh, so uh, it's you've got to realize for ordinary risk-averse people, there's no planet B. We've got to solve our problem there. But on the other hand, if you think of the very far future, and when we talk about uh, the future of the species and future species, then, of course, um, astronomers have lots of views on this. One point which I think is very important is that it's taken three and a half billion years for us to evolve from the first protozoa that you'd call alive. Um, but the sun's got six billion years ahead of it before it dies. So we should not think of us humans as the culmination of evolution. We may not even be the halfway stage. And what's this future evolution going, going to be? It's not going to be Darwinian natural selection, which led to us. It's going to be much faster. It's going to be what I call secular intelligent design. Uh, when uh, um, humans uh, genetically modify themselves um, and perhaps um, uh, develop electronic avatars uh, that could perhaps uh, develop faster than flesh and blood creatures can. And um, I think the pioneers on Mars at the end of the century, they will be crucial in this cosmic perspective because they will be in this hostile environment and they will have every incentive to use all the techniques we will then have in genetic modification, cyborg techniques, etc., to adapt themselves to that environment. And we will hope that those techniques will be regulated here on Earth on grounds of prudence and ethics. And, of course, we are well adapted to the Earth, so we don't have the incentive. But these guys on Mars, they have the incentive to adapt better to where they are, and they're away from the regulators. And so if we imagine post-human evolution, then that may be generated not by us comfortably on Earth, but by the crazy pioneers on Mars. And that's another reason why I rather hope they will go. And Elon Musk himself um, has said that uh, he wants to die on Mars, but not on impact. He's now 50 years old. 
Um, and 40 years from now, maybe he will. Some of the points that you have just made, we will come back to these uh, shortly. Uh, but let us stick with the space um, exploration for a while. You have just um, presented this view that uh, maybe by the end of the century, uh, some of us will be living on Mars. So how should we prioritize various aspects of space exploration uh, now? For instance, uh, space exploration for mining on asteroids, for getting back to moon, for pure research, or for finding other habitable places. How should we prioritize uh, these various aspects of space exploration? Um, well, I don't think we should spend any taxpayers' money on any human uh, exploration, uh, but we should uh, use machines. And if we want to build a telescope on the backside of the moon, for instance, uh, we could have machines to do that. Uh, we don't need people. And ditto, if we want to have large solar energy collectors in orbit um, uh, to give uh, more efficient solar energy than we get on Earth, those collectors can be uh, um, fabricated by robots. So we don't need robots, sorry, we don't need humans for any of these uh, purposes uh, which uh, take advantage of the space environment. My question was about uh, setting up the priorities also, getting back to moon, mining asteroids, or just focusing on pure research or focusing on habitable places. H how do you see these various aspects of space exploration? Well, I think publicly funded space uh, should uh, uh, do practical things. Of course, we depend daily on um, uh, low-orbit spacecraft for uh, sat-nav, communications, weather forecasting, and the rest. And uh, in the future, we may get our energy uh, from space. Um, and there's got to be a discussion about priorities uh, among those uses of space, um, and also about uh, um, whether uh, there, there should be um, exploitation of the moon and the asteroids for materials. And that could be done by robots. Um, and that's the kind of thing which needs public discussion. Um, but the other um, manned human exploits, if they're done privately, um, this doesn't need any global consensus. Uh, let these guys do it. There's got to be some regulations. Um, and uh, um, maybe we have to be careful about uh, not... Uh, uh, messing up Mars if there's evidence for any life there, etc. But um, the priorities uh, for human spaceflight uh, will be decided by those who pay for it, and not by all of us citizens. You just mentioned a few moments ago uh, that by the end of the century, there will be few pioneers living on Mars. You, you say this in the book as well. So how do you see this happening in the next 80 years? What are the baby steps uh, that we will be taking over the next 20, 30 years that will enable us to achieve this goal? Well, I think obviously we want to uh, cut the cost of uh, uh, launches that's coming down already um, and also um, have... Uh, more efficient communications. Um, but I think uh, it's going to be very, very hard because uh, if humans are going, then they need supplies of food, etc. So it's never going to be cheap. And we may perhaps have a method whereby we can send lots of provisions with uh, robots to actually set up a base 
in Mars. So I think the uh, developments between what we could do now and what we could do in 50 years is it may then be quite cheap to send robots to assemble structures uh, on the surface of Mars before we send people. But sending people, I think, won't be um, much easier then than it is now. Um, unless we have some completely new propulsion system, which cuts the journey time by a big factor. It's about uh, 200 days typically now. And again, coming back to a point that you made a few moments ago, do you think uh, we will need new laws uh, and ethical and political and social frameworks before we allow some of our fellow humans to go and colonize Mars. So how do you see this aspect of colonizing another place in space? Well, I think uh, in the early foreseeable stages, when the numbers are small, uh, I honestly don't think we need worry too much about this. Um, it, it'll be a sort of Wild West system that prevails. I think the only uh, thing that uh, would uh, be important, I think, would be that if evidence has already emerged by that time from robotic probes that there is some embryonic life on Mars, then, of course, one would like to see it protected, just as we have laws to protect the Antarctic, etc. Um, but apart from that, um, I think uh, um, the Wild West laws can, Wild West style can prevail uh, for the uh, pioneers who go to Mars and maybe try to mine the asteroids. Martin, I am very much intrigued with the term that you have just used, uh, Wild West <laughs> mm. uh, approach uh, can be applied when we are about to colonize Mars. Well, if, uh, if, 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 if on Mars it's Wild West, it will come back and, and haunt us here on Earth as well. Um, well, only if you assume that there will be large numbers, but uh, I'm assuming that there'll never be large numbers. Lots of people don't want to live at the South Pole or at the bottom of the ocean. And likewise, not huge numbers would want to live on Mars, especially if they have just a one-way trip. <laughs> uh, Martin, in your book, On the Future, Prospects for Humanity, you warn us about the unintended consequences of uh, some technological developments that uh, we are keenly pursuing uh, now. For instance, a lot of progress is being made in the field of artificial intelligence. This is also important for the space exploration uh, that we discussed a few moments ago. Uh, you also talk about our dependence on interconnected systems and networks. Uh, do you think enough uh, attention is being paid to these possible unintended consequences? And do you think we are aware of the risks? Do you think that we have developed risk management procedures and and processes to deal with uh, these unintended consequences? Uh, no, I think we are not adequately prepared. And uh, one thing we've learned from the pandemic is that it would have been well worthwhile spending even hundreds of billions of dollars uh, to be better prepared uh, for uh, a global catastrophe like that. And of course, uh, that's not the worst that we could imagine. We could imagine a pandemic which... Uh, had a higher fatality rate uh, than uh, COVID-19 did. Um, but I think, uh, and as I mentioned in my, my book, uh, what really scares me is uh, the fact that um, technologies like bio and cyber 
are so powerful that even a few people or even a single person can cause a catastrophe by error or by design, which could spread globally. I'm thinking of a massive cyber attacks, breakdowns in the internet or the electricity grid in a large area, uh, which can be caused by um, an attack engineered by just a few people. And also, um, I worry very much about the fact it's now possible to engineer viruses, uh, so gain a function experiments to make them more virulent and more transmissible than the actual ones. And I'm very, very scared indeed about the fact that these technologies are widely understood and they don't require large special purpose facilities. Uh, it's not easy for an individual to build an H-bomb that needs large special purpose facilities, which can be monitored, of course. Uh, but um, uh, if we think of cyber or bio, uh, this can be done by people in a fairly ordinary lab or even at home, perhaps, if it's a cyber attack. And uh, one worry I have is that um, governance of each country and internationally is going to be more difficult and it's going to present a very powerful and difficult tension between three things we want to preserve, um, liberty, security and privacy. We can't have all three of those and I think what's going to happen is we're going to have to give up privacy and accept perpetual surveillance. And I think the Chinese will be happy with this. I think we have to get used to it because um, one uh, bad actor is too many if the consequences can be a global catastrophe. So I think that's a, a problem and I don't see any way around it. Uh, we can, of course, uh, minimize the probability by um, uh, ensuring that the world becomes a less unjust place and fewer people have uh, justified grievances for embitterments or to uh, uh, take against society. But I do think that that's a very uh, big challenge that's going to face us in the coming decades, and I just don't know how to deal with it. Martin, uh, this is a very important statement that you just made that we may have to accept uh, uh, surveillance, we may have to let a bit of our privacy go, because uh, in the past, in our social fabric, the concept of privacy is embedded in such a way that uh, challenging this could lead to conflict, if if this is the way we can mitigate and we can understand and mitigate these risks, uh, then uh, how should we approach this? H how we address these issues? Um, well, I think um, uh, it may not be quite so hard to get the public to accept this because, of course, um, uh, many people um, put on the internet um, personal details which in the past you'd think they would want to keep to themselves. Uh, so lots of people don't seem very concerned about privacy. Um, and uh, of course, the other thing which people have got used to is uh, intrusive security. We've had uh, uh, security on air travel for the last 20 years and the amount of security involved in doing anything on the internet, any transaction, is going up. Uh, this is rather vexatious and tiresome, but I think we're going to uh, find that people would be accepting of this, especially if there are a few cases um, where um, bad actors have produced major disasters. And moving on to my next question, uh, genetics, and you briefly touched upon that as well a few moments ago. 
Genetics is another fascinating area of research and development. However, there are huge ethical implications, particularly now that we have tools such as CRISPR uh, that enables us to edit genes. Uh, a lot can be achieved. However, there could be unintended consequences as well. Yes. Well, indeed, and that's why uh, everyone, including most Chinese scientists, disapproved of the uh, uh, Chinese doctor who uh, uh, did gene editing on uh, on embryos, uh, which then went to term and produced babies. So that, that's certainly a case. Uh, I think one um, uh, slight comfort is that um, there are some uh, attributes which are consequence of a single gene which can be edited by CRISPR, uh, for instance, propensity to some diseases like Huntington's disease. And that's a good thing. I think everyone would say it's good to um, uh, try and eliminate the risk of a disease if that can be done easily. Uh, but um, it's not the case that uh, most important human characteristics like the way we look and intelligence, etc., are due to as one gene. Uh, they're due to some unknown as yet combination of many thousands of genes. So uh, if one's going to actually um, have the kind of uh, designer baby scenario uh, where you can ch choose a, uh, a baby, then um, first of all, you've got to apply AI perhaps to study lots of genomes and decide which combination of many thousands of genomes is the one to optimize uh, these desirable qualities. And then, of course, you've got to have the ability to synthesize a whole genome with those properties. And uh, this may come in the second half of the century, but it's quite a long way away. And, of course, it may prove to be very difficult to, to deal with. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, uh, there's a tremendous aim to do this. Of course, we've had it recently in the news, um, people wanting to extend their lifespan, the three labs being set up by some American billionaires to uh, explore um, uh, extending lifespans. I mean, um, I'm rather cynical about this. It's this these guys, when they were young, they wanted to be rich. Now they're rich, they want to be young, young again. And uh, that may not be possible, and it may not be desirable. And so, so I, I hope that project doesn't succeed very much. But it's going to be very difficult. Um, but um, uh, I think what may happen is um, some sort of cyborg um, uh, hybrid where uh, we can somehow enhance our brain power by plugging into um, uh, some kind of electronic memory, um, which will be even more part of us than our mobile phones already are. And uh, you just mentioned a few moments ago uh, our ability to create viruses are change the signatures or, or genomes of these viruses and maybe make them more lethal. We are just uh, coming out of this uh, pandemic, if I'm uh, optimistic, and, and we, we should be. So this experience of going through this pandemic and dealing with this virus, uh, does it increase uh, a level of anxiety in uh, researchers that this uh, could be a, a, a very serious danger? Well, I think the researchers must have been aware um, of the uh, risk of pandemics. Um, and, of course, the nightmare is something which has the transmissibility of uh, the Omicron virus of COVID-19, um, but the lethality of, uh, of Ebola or something like that. Those, that's the uh, absolute nightmare. Um, 
and I think all the experts are aware of this, but I think the, the public is aware of the uh, interconnectedness of the world and how uh, vulnerable we are and how the consequences of uh, a pandemic um, can affect the whole of society in different ways. And I think there's one lesson that we can learn, um, and that is that there's a trade-off between um, resilience and efficiency. Let me give two examples. Uh, one example is that um, uh, many companies like car manufacturers depend on supply chains where components come in from all over the world and they have just-in-time delivery and save money by not keeping stocks. Well, that's fine if everything goes well, but uh, they are vulnerable to one link in one chain breaking. And of course, that's happened in one or two cases. And so I think there will be a, a shift towards a, a method of organizing manufacturing, which does uh, have more resilience built in, keeping inventories um, and uh, perhaps having multiple supply chains. That's one thing. And another example is that in hospitals, it may seem efficient to have nearly all the beds occupied all the time, including intensive care, whereas it's more prudent and more resilient if there are always, say, 20 or 30 percent of uh, intensive care beds empty in case there is some uh, special uh, demand in a pandemic. Uh, so I think we're learning that it's worth uh, spending money on preparedness, even if it's a cost in the short run. It's a sort of insurance premium. In your book, On the Future, Prospects for Humanity, you discuss post-human era and you suggest that uh, this is the century when humans will jumpstart the transition to electronic and potentially immortal entities. And you talk about bioengineering that uh, should enable us to combine our organic intelligence that resides in a wet brain with artificial intelligence that resides uh, in a silicon chip. Uh, and by fusing this together, new entities will emerge. And this is post-human era. Talk us through the concept of post-human era. Uh, well, I mean, of course, uh, um, the, the ideas you've just quoted um, are familiar from many science fiction uh, stories, as you know. Um, but what's not so clear is the timescale. Um, it's easier to predict the trend of technology than to predict the time scale. It sometimes goes in a very sudden surge, but sometimes uh, it's on a plateau and doesn't develop. And I think um, there's a big uncertainty in, uh, for instance, the development of advanced AI. Some people think that it'll happen in 20 years. Some people think it will uh, uh, never happen and that we'll have to worry about real stupidity rather than artificial intelligence for a long time more. Uh, so there's a big uncertainty in that. Um, but uh, I think um, uh, if, if we consider timescales which are um, astronomical rather than the timescales of um, uh, decades or even centuries, uh, then, of course, um, we can imagine these things. Um, we can imagine that there will be uh, changes in humans. Um, on a timescale much faster than Darwinian selection, because Darwinian selection uh, to breed a new species of mammal takes hundreds of thousands of years. And I think these changes will be much faster than that, um, a few centuries perhaps. Um, and of course, um, if they lead to 
entities of greater intelligence, then of course we with our limited brain power can't really conceive what they will do. And I think we've got to be open-minded, and I say this speaking as a scientist, uh, that there may be um, aspects of the physical world which we're not aware of and which are beyond human comprehension to understand. Um, just like um, uh, a monkey can't understand quantum theory, uh, so there may be deep features of the world which will uh, always elude human beings because we're not just up to it. And maybe some sort of uh, post-human or electronic entity will be able to do this and uh, develop technologies as we just can't conceive. Uh, so uh, when I wrote those words which you quote from my book, um, I wasn't specifying the time scale. I think um, it's a long time scale and uh, uh, all I'm saying is it's a possibility um, which um, is not just science fiction. And incidentally, I think it's good to read science fiction. Um, uh, First-rate science fiction is better than reading second-rate science and uh, no more likely to be wrong. <laughs> uh, Martin, your previous book, uh, On the Future, Prospects for Humanity, came out just before pandemic. And then uh, there is uh, a paperback version uh, that came out uh, just uh, three or four months ago. So my question here is that in this version, uh, in this edition, uh, did you uh, include something that you might have learned uh, through this experience of uh, uh, going through pandemic? Yes, well, I emphasize things like um, uh, uh, resilience uh, being more important than efficiency in many contexts, and we've shifted too far towards banning efficiency. Um, I also emphasize the need for um, uh, uh, global he health uh, projects to actually identify um, new viruses at source, etc. Um, so I, I did that. But in the original book, uh, before we'd had a pandemic, I did make the point that um, uh, situation was very different now from in the Middle Ages when they had the Black Death. When the Black Death occurred, in many towns, half the population died, but the rest just went on fatalistically. But now, and I said this in the early version of my book, um, if we had some sort of pandemic and if it killed more than 1% of the population, we probably have social breakdown because that would overwhelm hospitals and everyone would clamor for treatment, which they knew was available in principle, but which they weren't getting. And uh, I think that that is a scare. In the present pandemic, I think the death toll in uh, the United Kingdom, Ireland and North America has been about 0.3 or 0.4% of the population. And already we've got near to overwhelming hospitals. And so uh, I, I think that my predictions were um, reliable, um, but they've been um, uh, firmed up, obviously. And uh, I think there's greater awareness now of the need to um, uh, prepare for these catastrophes and to um, try and um, minimize their consequences and their frequency. Um, and uh, uh, the ones which I mentioned, like um, misuse of biotech or cyber attacks, they are getting more frequent all the time. And so I think they are, should be higher on the agenda than they have been up till now. Uh, Martin, we are discussing your book, 
the end of astronauts why robots are the future of exploration we have also touched upon a number of topics that you discuss in your uh, previous book on the future prospects for humanity obviously there is lot more in these books however is there anything else that you suggest we should discuss before we close this discussion i think it would be interesting to uh, discuss the um limits of science and also um i think how we can uh, change our politics i mean i think uh, um we we haven't mentioned um global warming and all that um these are a different kind of uh, catastrophes from um cyber and bio um because um uh, they are insidious and slow and the analogy uh, for climate change etc um is the um uh, uh, the frog in the warming tank of water not realizing it's doomed until it's too late to save itself uh, so that's the situation we are in regarding um uh, climate etc and uh, allied issues like uh, the loss of biodiversity etc and so i think uh, what we need to give more attention to and i've uh, written on this and we've got a group in cambridge thinking about these matters um is to um think about how we can um not only prepare better uh, for changing climate and try and reduce our dependence on carbon but also um see if we can do something to um uh, combat the huge inequalities which now prevail not just within countries where we know that the gross inequalities but between countries and this links to the question of population and uh, in the, in the world the population has of course been growing fast up to now uh, that growth is leveling off in most countries actually but in sub-saharan africa for instance it's not leveling off and so by mid century it's likely that there will be um about uh, uh, in the global south in india and sub-saharan africa there will be probably 4 billion people and uh, we have to ask how are they going to get enough food and how are they going to get enough energy without this involving use of carbon and without the uh, uh, land use being uh, altered in such a way that we lose biodiversity by getting rid of natural forests and all the rest so i think all these issues are important and i personally think that uh, on a global scale or at least on a continental scale there needs to be a massive effort to ensure that africa doesn't fall behind because if the african population keeps on growing and they get trapped in poverty uh, then um this is a situation which is um uh, appalling for the, those people themselves but of course it's a danger to the stability of the world because in africa now um they may not have much in the way of uh, um health or facilities or even toilets and things like that but they do have mobile phones and the internet so they now unlike their predecessors realize what they're missing they know the injustice of their fate and migration is easy and so i think it would be worthwhile for countries of the global north the prosperous north especially in europe to have a sort of a mega marshall plan like the americans did after world war 2 for europe to ensure that uh, africa um can um uh, get out of the poverty trap um and also um to ensure that um they can develop clean energy and i think um uh, 
if we think of the attempt to go to zero carbon by 2050, um, we we are in um, in my country and yours trying to get this down to zero. Um, but uh, if we do that, that will make less than two percent difference to the world emissions. Whereas if by 2050 the uh, um, sub-Saharan Africa nations and India have developed to the level of China today, they will produce it, be producing as much energy as 40% of the world does today. And so uh, the most important thing is to ensure that the curve can be bent over, as it were, so that those countries which need more energy to develop will be able to do this without building coal-fired power stations. And that's a very strong motive, in my view, for our countries prioritizing a massive effort in R&D into more efficient kinds of clean energy. Because it's not just for us, but it's for the rest of the world. And uh, uh, none of us is safe unless the rest of the world is able to afford the transition to clean energy, just as in the rest of the world, they have uh, managed to make the transition to uh, mobile phones without ever having, having had landlines. So we want to hope that they can develop without going through the phase of uh, coal-fired power stations, which we went through. But Martin, what you are saying now requires uh, a shift in policy making. It requires uh, global scale efforts. And you and I both have seen previous uh, two or three perhaps conferences on climate change and the difficulty uh, that is there to bring people together. Scientists are aware of some of these risks. Uh, They have data, they have evidence, but uh, the political situation out there is, is very interesting. My question is that do you think that our present political systems, institutions, and, and the fabric, the political fabric that, that, that we operate in, it enables our politicians to, to look beyond five years, six years, 10 years, 15 years. So if politicians, the policy makers, are not able to look beyond 10 years, 15 years, because uh, the urgent uh, task is to save the government and, and the next budget and all this. So how will we achieve uh, a consensus on these things and how, we, how will we actually do something about it? Yes, well, with great difficulty, certainly. But uh, uh, two points I'd make. First, I think uh, nations need to give a, a bit more of their authority to international bodies. We have the uh, World Health Organization, the International Atomic Energy Agency. We may need similar agencies to deal with, uh, for instance, the internet and uh, energy production. We need that. Um, but, of course, the main point is that uh, politicians have an urgent agenda and the public often has urgent worries. And so it's a big ask to um, uh, uh, ask the public to make sacrifices now for the benefit of people 20 or 30 years in the future, especially people in distant parts of the world, because, of course, the effect of climate change is going to uh, affect countries in the South far more than it affects us. So it's a big ask. And politicians will only take action if they think the public is behind them. And that's why uh, the views of the public and voters is important. They won't do anything if they feel they'll lose votes by it. And that's why, in my opinion, it's very important that uh, um, scientists 
should not just act as advisors to politicians because they won't get traction, except in an emergency like COVID-19, because they are talking long term. But what they can do is they can influence charismatic figures who will then have an impact on the wider electorate. And uh, let me just give four examples. Um, uh, Pope Francis, David Attenborough, Bill Gates, and Greta Thornburg. Four people, very different from each other, but all of them uh, having a very large following, and all of them um, singing for the same hymn sheet, as it were, with regard to climate change. And I think collectively um, having an influence. And so that's an example of how um, charismatic figures um, can have an impact on the public. And if the public uh, is mindful of these things and cares about the uh, welfare of the, the planet in the lives of their children and grandchildren, then the politicians will respond. So to uh, raise these issues in the general public's mind is a prerequisite for getting the politicians to take them seriously. Are you optimistic about uh, about us meeting these challenges and creating enabling conditions through these influencers and people who, who have social impact? Um, I'm not very optimistic because there are countervailing forces, of course, the uh, internet and fake news and things like that. Um, and uh, And what really depresses me is the widening gap between the way the world is and the way it could be. I mean, uh, in my book, I end up by going back to the Middle Ages and saying what my reaction is if I go to uh, Ely Cathedral, an amazing cathedral which is uh, near where I live in Cambridge. And um, uh, if one thinks of the people who built that, um, their horizons were limited. They knew about nothing beyond Europe. They thought the world might end in a thousand years, but they built cathedrals that wouldn't be finished in their lifetime and which still inspire us centuries later. Whereas we now can't think and plan so much ahead. Um, but I think there, there is a reason. And the reason is that um, despite their limited horizons, um, the cathedral builders thought that their children and grandchildren would lead lives similar to theirs. And so they were fairly sure that their descendants, their grandchildren, would appreciate the finished cathedral. Whereas I think things are now changing so fast that we can't be sure what the preferences and tastes will be of people 50 years from now. And this is an inhibition of uh, confident long-term planning. And I think that's a, a big problem, that because things are changing fast, uh, we are not uh, devoting enough time to planning. We need more what is called cathedral thinking, um, so that we can be good ancestors and make sure that the world is better for our children and grandchildren. But that's hard uh, simply because the world is so complicated and is getting um, uh, more dangerous. Um, but I think it is um, uh, an indictment of uh, the species as a whole uh, that the gap between the way it could be and the way it is uh, is uh, widening in particular inequalities between the fortunate and the unfortunate are widening. Professor Martin Rees, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on Bridging the Gaps. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you and goodbye.